It's got a soul, this here old farm It falls asleep inside my arms We walk the fields under the stars For love is here in Goldshaw Farms Welcome to Goldshaw Farm. I'm your host, Morgan Gold. On each episode of our podcast, we bring you stories of people who are homesteading, farming, and chasing their dreams. And right now, I am uh, actually sitting in my living room. I'm working on repairing our uh, fireplace mantle. So uh, we actually are are just in the process of getting a new wood-burning stove. Uh, It's a bit larger, um, and hopefully it's going to keep our house a bit warmer. (laughs) And one of the challenges, though, was in order to get it in here, we had to actually pull out pieces of our, our wood mantle. And so... Right now, I'm, I'm working on replacing and repairing that. And, uh, you know, being up here in, in northern Vermont, living in a farmhouse that's about 190-ish years old, um, I find I have a lot of these like little fun home ownership tasks. But uh, ultimately, I got to say, that that's not too dissimilar than what I find with a lot of my neighbors around here in Peach, Vermont. Um, most of the houses here are very old. Um, many of them even a lot older than the one that we live in here. And uh, it's funny when we all get together and commiserate about the uh, challenges about living in an old house. One of those neighbors that I have who lives in an ancient house that has a gigantic old barn attached to it, um, or nearly attached to it, is a, a friend of mine by the name of Ian Boswell. Ian has had uh, an interesting run of things over the last several years. He uh, his, his job is he's a professional cyclist, so um, he goes out and, and races around the country or around the world, really. Um, he was in the Tour de France a couple of years ago, and uh, he actually just recently retired from that and is kind of moving on to his next thing. And, and a big part of his next thing was actually coming up here to Peachum and, and living and, and really building a home with his wife Gretchen and trying to set up a actually like a, a, a hospitality business or hotelish bed and breakfast type business as well as you know he's a big hunter and fisherman as well as thinking about what he wants to do in terms of animals and growing his own food on his property and, and so you know sitting down and talking with Ian is always kind of a fun experience for me because He's got so much energy and passion for these things and is so willing to learn new concepts. And, and ultimately, he's a guy who is absolutely an expert when it comes to cycling, but is perfectly comfortable in saying that, yeah, I'm a newbie and, and is just sort of starting out when it comes to thinking about homesteading for himself. And so I figured today would be an interesting episode to actually sit down with Ian and, and talk to him and learn about sort of where he's coming from as well as get a sense of how he's thinking about going about things where he looks out and where he wants to go. So uh, here's my conversation with Ian Boswell. I grew up in central Oregon um, in a town called Bend, which was an old mining town. Um, Sorry, not an old mining town, an old um, lumber town. Um, The lumber yard shut down like in the 1960s. Um, So it was kind of an abandoned, you know, mill town for a long time. And my parents moved there from California in the I guess my mom in the 70s, my dad in the 80s. Um, yeah, it was a great place to grow up. It was, uh, you know, enough of a city that there's enough going on, but, you know, rural enough that, you know, I had cousins that lived out in the country, so 
could get out and explore. But the uh, the town's grown a lot since since when I left. <laughs> and, and and when you were a kid, what were you? What were like the things you were passionate about? Um, just anything outside, you know. So I played all like major American sports, you know, basketball, football, baseball, soccer, um, skiing, and snowboarding. Is like up at Mount Bachelor, so that's not that far away. And uh, yeah, then as I got older, we did a lot of like. I guess not older, like eight, nine, my mom got really into like mountaineering and backpacking. So we did a lot of, you know, backpacking trips with her. And then I got into cycling and my cousins, like I said, lived out in the country. So we always wanted to go out there and like ride dirt bikes and, you know, shoot squirrels. And then we got into hunting. Um, But yeah, we always had like a small garden and stuff. So it was, you know, a nice balance of like being in a somewhat, you know, urban setting, but still with, you know, outdoor wilderness to be accessed. Mm. And... As you're out there experiencing that and, and thinking about like what you want to do when you grow up, like what was the dream then? Um, well, I guess from a pretty young age, I always wanted to be a cyclist. Like from 10, 10 or 12 years old, like I got into cycling and that kind of became my path and I became extremely passionate about racing bikes. And so um, that was something that kind of was always in the background, like even through school and I'd you know play basketball in the winter, but then once basketball season was over, I was straight back into to training and racing my bike. And now, like when you're like a teenage kid racing bikes, like what does that circuit look like? Because I can't pick, like I, I, I get how like somebody comes up through like little league or basketball yeah. to like go into high school basketball, like high school sports. What's it like for cycling? Um... Well, at first off, it's weird because, like, you know, cycling is a strange sport to be involved in at a young age. And, like, people are shaving their legs and you're wearing spandex. And, like, I remember keeping a pretty defined separation between, like, my school life and my cycling life because, like, you know, I'd never show up to school in my bike shorts. And it was something, like, in the summer I was, like, that kid who just, like, disappeared for summer because I was traveling the country um, racing bikes. And, you know, first it started off more regionally racing in Oregon. And then as I got older, you know, I started traveling to like the national championships and then race for the national teams. Then at, when I was 16, I started going to, to Europe to race. So, so you're like going to high school during the regular time of the year. And then when it's summer hits, you're like off to Europe to go race. Is that like how it works? Yeah, pretty. I mean, because bike racing, like the season's usually from, I mean, as a pro, it starts earlier. But at that age, it's like, I don't know, maybe April to September. So it's kind of works out perfect for, for school. Um, but yeah, like in the summer, I would gone traveling racing or you know at you know other friends house or team house you know i raced for a team actually in uh, massachusetts hot tubes um, based in bolton massachusetts so i spent my after after i graduated my senior year once i graduated that summer i lived in, in massachusetts all summer mm. and and as you're now sort of like finishing up high school then what, what happens to you then because i again i have like no idea yeah. what the career trajectory yeah or something well, like that is like i guess it kind of stems so my junior year of high school i actually did a rotary youth exchange in belgium um and belgium's like a hotbed for cycling i was like oh cool like i'll put belgium on my you get three choices of countries you want to go to i think i picked like france italy and spain which are all pretty big cycling countries and i wound up in belgium which was awesome but I was in like downtown Brussels, which is like probably one of the worst. I mean, you could ride, but it wasn't like what I had thought. And during the school year, it's, you know, wet and gray and cold. Um, so when I came back from Belgium, my senior year of high school, because I'd almost attribute it to the fact that like in Europe, we could like go to clubs and we were in, like go out to the, a bar drink when I was 16. Um, you know, I came back from my senior year of high school and I was a bit over kind of the senioritis, you know, activities. Um so I'd finished the first 
actually had like I'd, I gained enough credits my counselor at school for some odd reasons like oh wow, this is such a great experience like we'll give you all these like extra credits for you know language and um you know ma- and, like my report card in Europe was terrible because I didn't speak French and the school was fully French speaking so I just like sat in the back of class and you know I was like trying to understand what was going on um but so once I came back actually my like I was realized how much I was like kind of messing around in school you know I always like paid attention try to get good grades but I realized like it's just easier to do the work than it is to play around and you know pretend like you're the class clown um so I actually wound up graduating in January and then I moved down to Northern California to start training and racing and then I went to Butte College in Chico California for a year and a half wow so so when you're like training like are you like who's paying for the cost like are you having to pay for stuff how, how does that work yeah well so I mean I guess, you know, kind of going back to those days, um, when I was with Hot Tubes, when I was 17, Hot Hot Tubes is the junior team I raced for out of Massachusetts. Um, They're one of like the better, the kind of the most notorious junior team in the U.S. Like they've been around for 20 years and they recruit riders from all over the country. Um, So you're not paid a salary, but everything's covered, you know, so travel and equipment and race entry fees. Um, You know, I was living at Toby Stanton, the director's house. So it's like I had no expenses. Um, and once I left that team, I actually signed for Bissell, the vacuum company. They sponsored a cycling team. Um, so when I was 19, I aged out of the junior, you know, the younger categories and became, uh, I guess, a professional. Um, and I had signed a contract really late and it wasn't really what I had anticipated. I, you know, some other teams had like talked to me and they kind of fell through. Some teams folded. Um, so I got $100 a month <laughs> from them and I was living in Northern California in my one of my dad's friends pool house out back um and i survived you know i my parents like helped me out a little bit they had some money put away for college so i think i got like 400 bucks a month for, from them to pay for college and junior college was super cheap so with 500 bucks a month um i was able to live and the team was actually sponsored by kellogg's cereal and the service course was over in santa rosa so all these riders around, around the country couldn't you know the service course was just full of cereal and i was like a poor 19 year old so i would drive over there like once a month and pick up just like a carload of cereal um so i lived off cereal and you know just rode my bike all right so when you're you're 19 and you're living off of cereal and biking every day like do you have time for other hobbies or like you know like are you out hunting or fishing or doing anything else that you love doing um yes that's kind of the point in my life when like balance became much more difficult you know living in northern california was great because like you could forage a lot um you know, there's so many fruit trees and citrus trees and nut trees. You know, there's like almonds, like it's like the you know capital of the world for almonds and um, olives are big there. So I you know definitely became frugal and like resourceful in that sense. Um, but I definitely stopped. You know, in the off season, so like through from October to you know February, I would still like go back to Oregon and you know for Thanksgiving go hunting and fishing and um, did a little bit of backpacking. But as I got older, that balance of life became more difficult to do what I wanted to do and then, you know, to kind of live this professional lifestyle. So now kind of you're on that track and, and you do that progressively for a few years, kind of working to like bigger racers, bigger, bigger teams. Is that how it basically works? Yeah, pretty much. So from Bissell, I went to a team um, called Livestrong. Well, you probably are familiar with Livestrong. So it was a team funded by Lance and like Trek bikes. Um, So I went to that team for two years and, you know, there I actually did receive a salary. I think I got like 10 grand a year, um, which at that age was like 
I could live off that. <laughs> you know, it's like I had pretty low expenses and like all my travel was covered and you know, every time you go to a team event, like, you know, food's covered. So I was like, oh, I'll go to every race you guys need me to because I'm, you know, can live for free. Um, and then, you know, I would also race with the national team as well. So, you know, there were a good four months a year when I had almost no expenses, um, you know, other than, you know, the occasional like ice cream or beer or French fries or something, you know, when we would sneak out of the national team house in Europe. Um, but yeah, then from, from that team, I got picked up by Team Sky, which is like, you know, the world tour is like the highest level um, kind of ranking of right of, of teams. Um, and so then that's when I actually kind of like, it became like a real job, like something that was actually financially, you know, viable to, to live off of independently. Wow. <laughs> now, what year were you at Livestrong? Um, 2011 and 12. So that was like right when like all the stuff was starting to break, yeah. right? Yeah, I actually had my 21st birthday at Lance Armstrong's house. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that was cool. Um, you know, so at the time when I was on the team, and the team subsequently folded once the federal investigation, um, I guess it was the USADA, and the federal investigation didn't pass, but the USADA, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, once that um, investigation, you know, accused him and he was guilty, then that team folded, but I was already off the team by then. Wow. But that must have been just crazy to see, like, all that in the headlines and just making such yeah. major news. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's yeah. where I lived for yeah. a long time. Well, it was. And, like, being a young a young individual, you know, I was, like, so influenced by Lance's, you know, kind of, you know, the attention he brought to cycling was so immense that it's also part of the reason why I was able to get into cycling because, you know, it, there was this huge boom in the U.S. So, you know, companies and brands were, like, putting money into cycling because of Lance. Um you know, so while his, you know, doping allegations were, you know, terrible for the sport, um, to a degree I still owe him, you know, appreciation for making the sport visible in the U.S., which allowed people like myself to get to that level. Wow. That's, that's yeah, that is pretty incredible. Um, and then sort of what would you say from your cycling career standpoint was like really the kind of... The pinnacle? Pinnacle, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think signing with Team Sky was a big, I mean, in the world of cycling there well, they've changed names to be Ineos now, which is a actually a British like petrochemical company. Um, but at the time, I was Team Sky was like the Yankees of of cycling. Um, so that was like a big accomplishment, you know, something that I'd worked towards for my whole life to get to a team like that and to be with the best riders in the world and the best equipment and you know you're kind of surrounded by excellence. Um, it was awesome. Sometimes I felt like out of place. Like how did I actually get here? Um, but then probably the pinnacle or the proudest moment was probably racing in the Tour de France. Mm. And now what, what was that experience like? Like showing up there at this legendary race and... and... Uh, it was like, it was surreal to be honest. You know, I dreamt about it for so long and, you know, really like all these childhood dreams of watching the race on TV kind of came back. You know, I've lived in France up until doing the tour. I'd lived in France for six years and I'd never actually gone to Paris. You know, I'd been in the airport, but I'd never went to Paris because I was like, I want to go to Paris at the finish of the Tour de France. Like, that's how I want to enter Paris. Um, you know, so maybe internally I had, like, built it up in my mind even more so than the race, you know, or the prestige around the race. And, yeah, that was just a, it was a dream come true to actually participate in that event. Mm. That night before, like, the first start of the race, like, that first segment, like, what's going through your mind when, when, something like that's about to hit you i mean at that point like when you're actually at the race and like the hotel and we were at the you know the start village or the start town like i think four days before um but what was going through was just like almost extreme caution 
you know, because there's a reserve rider, so you have eight riders on the team, and there's, like, one reserve rider, you know, so just being, like, extremely cautious, like, the last thing I want to do the day before is, like, get food poisoning or crash or, you know, something stupid, like, twist your ankle, so I was just, like, being not scared, like, once the actual, we started the race, and I was, like, in it, I was, like, okay, now I'm in it, like, nothing in the, you know, the months and the weeks leading up to it when I knew I was, like, on the long list, um, you know, I was, like, scared of, like, something happening, like, what if I you know, have just even a small crash and like you're the rider who's like the eighth man on the team and they're like, well, like, you know, he said he's sick. Like maybe we'll just pull him out and put someone else in. <laughs> it's like the George Costanza hand model. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like, I, yeah, I'm just like, lived, you know, it didn't live in a glass bubble because you still have to go through a life, but like just being like hypersensitive of like not hanging around people who are sick or like using hand sanitizer, you know, making sure you, you know, cook everything a bit longer. So mm. now, the last year, though, for you in cycling has been tough, and you most just recently retired. Yeah. So what happened? What? Why? Why? Yeah, so I uh, crashed in March of this year at a race in Italy, uh, March 2019. Yeah, and I hit the back of my head, and, you know, I was concussed and unconscious, and I've had other head injuries before. Um, but for some reason, the kind of the lasting effects of this injury or this crash, like, kept me out for the rest of the season, which in cycling terms, like a season is a really long time. Um, and you know, without this crash, I wouldn't have probably stopped racing. Cause it's just like, it's what I knew. And it was the easiest, you know, you know, it's an extremely like fortunate lifestyle. Like you're traveling and you have responsibility, but you can kind of like avoid, you know, household chores to a degree. Um, but I think just having that time away from racing and from Europe and like to spend, you know, I was the longest I had spent in Vermont prior to, that crash was like maybe two months. Um, so to spend a whole summer here and a whole year here, realizing like how fortunate we are to live here and then realizing that there were other opportunities within the sport to pursue and still have a job, but in a less stressful environment. And mm. um, yeah, and then there's been, you know, looking at my health as well, like just with the crash and like hitting my head and some of the symptoms that still linger. It's like, do I really want to go back to, I mean, I got married in May. And so it's like, you start to think about people around you besides just yourself right it, it must be sort of a i don't know tough's not the right word but odd feeling of going from this progression of like you have this life goal and you're working yeah. so hard for it for so many years but then realizing no yeah you get to a point and there's other things that you got to consider and there's other yeah. dimensions in life and your life is going to be three, four times what you've already experienced exactly. today yeah. so like what are you going to make of it yeah when i think also just the realization that you know, at some point your career in sport is going to end, like racing at that level. And whether it was, you know, this year, um, you know, I guess 2019 at the end of 2019, or whether it was, you know, 2025, at some point that's going to end and that transition is always going to be difficult. And I felt like to a degree I'd already gone through a lot of those steps to transition out of, you know, that world. Um, and it's like, I, you know, like I said, with the injury, I was like, I don't want to go through that again. And, you know, I don't want to put my wife through that, you know, you know, that fear again. Um, but I also like have made these steps to, you know, kind of enter the next phase of my life. And I felt like it was just the right time. Mm. Now you and I are sitting here in the living room of my ancient farmhouse with a gigantic old barn, yep. which is only a couple of miles from your own ancient farmhouse <laughs> yeah. with a gigantic old yeah. barn. Um, what brought you here to Vermont? Well, my wife grew up um, down in Reading, south of Woodstock, Vermont. So we met, she was living out in Oregon after college. We met out there when I was back visiting my family um, in 2015. 
and yeah, so I, um, we started dating and I came out to Vermont in the summer of 2016 for the first time. And, you know, I, you know, kind of going back to my childhood, like I always wanted property and room to like, you know, just roam and like, you know, garden. I'm not any good at it, but like I, there's skills I wanted to learn. Um, and even when I was younger, I'd consider like buying some property, like in Eastern Oregon, like, but it's literally just sand. Like it's just like juniper trees and sand. And I was just like, oh, I just want to have like, it'd be so cool to have like, you know, two acres. I could just go, I don't know, dig holes or something. Um, but once, <laughs> <Dig holes. laughs> I don't know, just like, do like, just have something like, wow, this is like my property. Right. Um, but then, yeah, once Gretchen and I, um, once I came to visit, we pretty quickly started looking at, at property and, um, we didn't really have a single area in Vermont we needed to be because, you know, at the time my job was extremely flexible and I knew I was going to be in Europe most of the time anyways. Um, you know, we wanted to be close to Gretchen's parents, but not down the road. So we looked, I mean, literally everywhere in the state of Vermont. Um, and Gretchen, while I was actually back in Europe, came to look at a house in Peachum over off Green Bay Loop. Um, and she went, she drove by and she's like, I don't know, Peachum seems really rural. Like, I don't know if we want to be you know, that far out there. Um, and our real estate agent was the same. She's like, don't you guys want to be in like Burlington or like Stowe? Or I'm like, no, we think we kind of know what we want. Probably similar to you. Like there were a couple of criteria we wanted. Um, at the time we'd wanted like 27 acres in this place. We don't have 27. We have 10, which is plenty to manage for me at the moment. Um, we wanted like an old farmhouse, which Gretchen's father advised us against doing, being a long, you know, lifelong Vermonter. <laughs> He's a very that. smart man. <laughs> yeah. After, yeah, but yeah. that one off myself, I'll say yeah. very smart man. <laughs> He's like, don't you want to like buy something, like buy property and build like a new energy efficient, like you know, <laughs> new house? I'm like, no, we, we kind of know what we want. Um, and a barn was something we were looking at, you know, it's nice for storage and, you know, multi-purpose, you know, space to have. Um but we, Gretchen actually came up to this house in Peachum in maybe it was November of 2016. And uh, she actually just called me. We'd actually like made an offer on a house in Stratford. And it was like, it was an awesome house, but it was like an old farmhouse that had been in the same family for 200 years. So it like needed a lot of work. Like there hadn't been an inspection ever. Um, and we actually at the last minute like pulled out and like we actually don't want to do this. Just didn't feel right. And so we kind of stopped looking for houses for a while. And then Gretchen came up to Peachum just on a whim, um, saw the house and called me. It's like, we have to make an offer on this place. And I'd never seen it. I just looked on online, saw the place and I was like, all right, let's do it. And um, came out and I was back in Vermont for Christmas in 2016 and we made an offer and then moved in in, in May. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had hoped to close earlier, but actually the house didn't have a leach field like the septic was just going straight into the brook um so it was delayed until until that was fixed <laughs> so what, what do you think it is about sort of the that instinct that you had of like wanting to own land because i talked to so many people and they they yeah. also have that sort of visceral drive for it yeah i don't mean i think it's like a very i mean i feel like it's a very western thing you know if you read like old like you know native american like you can't own anything and like you really own it like no in vermont is so different than oregon in the sense that there's not much public land here. I mean, we're close to Groton State Forest, but like growing up in Oregon, there's so much BLM or national forest or, you know, state forest land that properties like almost not property, but wilderness is endless. Um, so moving here was like, this is strange that there's actually not that much public land, but the fact that, you know, just how Vermont law works, that land is private, but it's not really 
private in a sense, like for hunting season or, you know, you see, you know, the snowmobile trails, like just go across, you know, landowners are very courteous here. Um, but why did I want property? I'm just, I mean, there's so many options and like every, there's more projects than I have time for. And there's also a lot more skill involved than I have talent. Um, but yeah, one day. Well, so, so what are you trying to tackle now as you, as you look at your place and kind of uh, look at the future of what you want to try to do there? There's always, there's always something. And I guess, you know, I follow your social channels, you know, your YouTube and podcast. And like, I have a lot of admiration for people who move here without the skills that people who grew up here have. Um, and, you know, Peachum's definitely a special community and people are very welcoming and very open and willing to help. But there are definitely times when like you have to ask someone for help for something and they're like, you don't know how to do that. Like, you know, like we had a pipe break in our house and like we called the plumber and they're like, yeah, we have an appointment in, uh, we have an opening in January and it was October. And I was like, I don't know how to fix that. And, you know, so I called Eric Kaufman, who's like the town, you know, hero. Like you call him for anything and he, he'll be over to help you out. Um, so kind of like slowly just started learning how to do, you know, really basic things. But it's something that, you know, I'm still very much trying to get that, you know, get that knowledge. And I guess being willing to ask people for help, which isn't always easy. I think that's such an important point. People like, particularly when you're new to something and you're just yeah. starting out, you do have this like shame and just not yeah. knowing because yeah. you, people are like, oh, you don't know how to yeah, yeah, change exactly. a pipe yeah, or yeah. you don't know how to, yeah. you know, clean your chimney. Like, like yeah. it's like, no, I know. Yeah. I never grew up with it. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. You got to be comfortable and ask. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, then, you know, when I grew up in Oregon, it's, you know, the town was founded or incorporated in 19, 1905. So it's a new town. Um, you know, the house that I grew up in was built in 1990 and, you know, my mom, like, I remember growing up, like, oh, like, there's something, like, it's falling apart, and this, I'm like, at the time, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, I see that, and now living in our house, I'm like, mom, your house is fine, <laughs> like, our house was built, like, 200 years ago, there's, your house is fine, um, yeah, I mean, just because growing up in an environment that didn't, you know, didn't learn those skills, um, yeah, something I, you know, kind of continually want to try to develop. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Now, one of the things I know that you guys are doing with your property is you're getting into the hospitality business. So, so yeah. like, what is that all about? Yeah, well, so we have an old dairy barn that's actually in pretty good shape. Um, and once we had bought the barn, we weren't married at the time, and we kind of decided, like, hey, we have this awesome space. Let's get married here. Kind of being the you know instigator of, like, this is a good way to clean out the barn because as your barn probably had just there's nooks and crannies and there's <laughs> oh, stuff everywhere. Oh, I'm still working on that one two yeah. years later. <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of the, you know, that's how we got started. Um, and then we, yes, yeah, so we, you know, got the barn ready for our wedding. Um, and we're looking at doing some more weddings kind of in the future because we're never going to dairy farm. I mean, maybe at one point we get like two cows, but we're not going to be doing a, you know, a big operation. Um, and you're not going to be keeping, I mean, for people no. who are listening to this too, your barn, it's like one of those ones just like ours where, you know, milking parlors on the second floor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. the logistics of that now. Yeah, getting a cow up there. Terrify me personally. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even we had like, you know, people at our wedding, I was like, is this floor going to hold? But <laughs> but it did. Um, but yes, we have, you know, we're trying to do more events. Um, we did that barn dance that you were there in, was that late October or November? Um, it was cold, but maybe a summertime barn dance would be in store. And then, uh, yeah, we have Airbnb going right now. The house came with a, a small A-frame out back that we have on Hip Camp, which is like Airbnb, but it's a camping platform. So um, there's running water out there and electricity, and we built a, a fire pit. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I guess 
I'm always amazed at how many people pass through this area. You know, because it seems like we are pretty out there at times. But, you know, we're between, you know, Burlington, Montpelier, or sorry, Montpelier is not that far, you know, Montreal, Boston. It's like people are, people seem to always be passing through. Mm, no, that's definitely the truth. And now you talk about having animal. You mentioned like maybe getting cows. Like, like what's your plan there? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you've moved much quicker than we have because you know you've you've like that's your, that's like your passion, you know. And for me, like my attention's always been drawn to like back to cycling. Or I've been gone, you know, in 2018 when I did the tour, I was gone for 10 months straight. So you can't have animal. I mean, I could, you know get some animals like hey Gretchen take care of them <laughs> um, but that's not really fair and then you know she would come to visit once in a while it's nice to have that flexibility but you know our ultimate goal would be in time like once we and that's kind of like the transition we're going through now like to be permanently here and you know have work here that you know is going to keep us here um, to get animals you know probably start off with chickens we'd love to get a dog at some point um, you and I had a discussion about dogs the other night <laughs> that got heated. Yeah. Um, not, not between you and I, but some other people. And, um, you know, like a, maybe some goats at, at times. And, you know, we have, or some sheep, because we have like a pasture that used to be um, grazed by cattle, um, which has slowly just been, you know, approached on by pine trees and, you know, a lot of honeysuckle. And which stuff. is like what happens everywhere around here. Yeah. Where, like, you know, I guess <clears throat> back in the 1800s, right? Vermont was entirely clear cut. Yeah. And it was just all pasture for yeah. sheep. Yeah. Um, but now it's since grown back with this like scrub brush forest yep. and, and mess. And yeah. Now even the old dairy pastures are starting to grow back exactly. up and, and sort of early succession stuff. Is yeah. It's on. it's crazy to like, you know, because I ride my bike down all these like back dirt roads and some like class four roads and I'll see like a stone wall and I'm like, wow, that was like all pasture land at some point. Um, and all those rocks came out of the field. So someone had to move them. <laughs> Yeah, which is crazy, and it's, you know, I've spoken to some people in, in Peachum who are, like, you know, have been here for generations, and some of them are actually frustrated to see how much forest there is now. Um, but I think, you know, the current climate, or the kind of the current, you know, ecosystem and landscape, I think it's beautiful. You know, you have this contrast where, you know, especially in this area, people still are dairy farming, and, you know, people are still keeping their fields mowed, but there is, you know, a fair amount of forest as well. Yeah, no, definitely. So if you guys are looking out 10 years from now, like what do you hope to have established here? Um, in 10 years time, I would love to be able to have our, you know, our property and our home and barn, like be our job. Like if that was possible, um, that would be ideal. Maybe, you know, you might have to supplement with some side income and, um, you know, health insurance is expensive. <laughs> um, but that I think would be our ultimate goal just to, to be able to make it self-sustaining or, you know, our lifestyle here is relatively inexpensive. Um, I mean, there's not much to buy, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, yeah. Yeah. I mean, no restaurants. Yeah, it's like exactly. you end up at friends' houses for <laughs> yeah. dinner. It's, it's all good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can, you, I mean, you can, you start to look at like tractor equipment and farm equipment. Like it, it adds up, but if you take care of your stuff, then it, it will last. Um, but I think that'd be our ultimate goal to be able to, you know, be more, you know, self-sustaining, but also financially self-sustaining with what we already own or, you know, the bank owns, but, you know, we're paying it off <laughs> slowly. Awesome. Um, that's a good place to end it, but is there anything else you wanted to try to go into? Um, yeah, I have some questions for you. <laughs> all right, <laughs> go into around. it. So, so, all right, so what, what questions do you have for me? I know you said well, you I had have, some. Well, I'm just, I mean, it's not more a question, it's more of a statement, but I guess I'm... Impre I mean, 
more than impressed, I mean, the admiration I have for you to be able to like move here and do to take on all these projects without without like the background <laughs> to actually do it. And but I think to also more you know, ambitious than dumb, yeah, man. <laughs> but through your through your YouTube channel to not be ashamed to make mistakes. Um, and that's something that I need to work on. It's something that I feel, you know, is very unique to like someone who does come from the outside, like they're, you know, willing to like make mistakes and show that they don't know how to do something. Um, so yeah, no, keep, keep doing it and <laughs> you can pass on that information to me. Thanks. Well, I mean, I, 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 but I think you, you bring up a really good point because again, you know, I know we were touching on this earlier, but you know, that pride of like, you know, people laughing at you because you yeah. screwed this or that up. Yeah. That for me was always like, growing up as a kid yeah as a teenager adult like was always sort of a lingering fear that always kept me from yeah. trying to do certain things yeah. and i don't think it was until i sort of confronted that issue of sort of the shame of screwing up or being yeah. laughed at is going to keep me from actually pushing and like yeah. trying new things and going after the things i want to do yeah that like once i reconciled that and like let that go just because yeah. it doesn't help you yeah. I, I found it easier yeah that's true and that's like one thing that i've found you know, being at the, in the career I've been in, like you're kind of at the pinnacle of sports. So people come to you for questions, you know, it's like you going to a, someone who grew up on a, you know, poultry farm for their whole life or, you know, ducks, geese, you know, with your uh, fruit trees out back and nut trees, like if someone had that their whole life. They just know it, you know, when it comes to cycling, like I know, you know, not everything, but a lot. So people come to ask me questions. So it's hard to like, then turn around and be like, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> you know, like and there's been so many mistakes. We've, you know, mostly small, but like stuff at the house, like we've started a project and not really seen it through. And I think that's one thing you have. I mean, you moved up here and you must've done a lot of research before moving here. Like, you know, you, within the first year you planted all the, all your trees. I mean, there was some research, but not a ton. I yeah. mean, like, uh, the, the trees I knew were like project number one. Yeah. And that was the thing that I knew I wanted to tackle because when I first moved up here, right, like we weren't living here full time. Yeah. So we were living in Washington D.C. I was ended up here like maybe once a month for a long weekend, and so I knew I couldn't have animals. Yeah. And I knew that trees take years. I mean, even now yeah. I'm just getting some elderberries. Yeah, like that's just, about yeah. all I'm getting out there. Um, and, and it's got probably another three years before I really get yields. Yeah. And and so I wanted to take advantage of that time. Yeah. And so that was just the first thing to go. So I like, yeah. dove into reading everything I possibly could about trees and yeah. how to start trees and raise them, talking to people. And, and that's what fed into Ultimately, that. Ultimately, yeah. yeah. Well, that's one thing I need to work on is like being more patient, like reading, like sometimes I expect to know things, you know, like I'll, like, I was like, <laughs> I can figure this out. Like, and it's definitely, well, and you've probably learned this. It's really wise to like take time and like read about something and learn it before you try to implement it. You know, there's been so many little projects that I've started. And All right. After, after we finish recording this, man, I'm going to take you upstairs. Figure. I got some books up in the library. I'm just going to yeah. toss them to okay. you. You should run that would them. Be, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be helpful. But and, and I will say too, it's not just reading. I mean, like YouTube videos well, yeah, play a huge yeah, role. Exactly. Talking to people yeah. is massive. Like yeah. I, I always would find that a good conversation with somebody would be worth as much as like one book. Yeah, like somebody who really knows what they're doing yeah. with certain whatever it is. Like, or if you can get someone to come and dogs. show you the first time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And just kind of the, the baby steps of yep. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. That's cool, man. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, we're gonna run upstairs and uh, I'll go get you get some, some books. books. You know, it's so fun to talk to Ian. <laughs> He's like one of my favorite people in town to hang out with. 
Um, it, it's so interesting because he has such a unique perspective on the world. And when I hear him talk about sort of being a little intimidated by things related to homesteading and being a little intimidated about things with like gardening and growing your own food, um, I frankly see a lot of myself in that too. Um, you know, we've only been doing this a couple years too. And, and so I, I think a lot of people out there might get this uh, intimidation factor when they think about, eh, I want to go move out to the middle of nowhere and, and try to live a simpler life. Yet it's actually not as hard as you think, even though it's also not as easy as you might think. But it's also, you know, you've got to be willing to make mistakes and, and you've got to be comfortable with making those mistakes. Because if you do, um, it can set you up for some really great things and you can make a lot of progress really quickly. You just have to have this open mind and sort of humble heart. And, and the combination of those two things will take you really, really far. So I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. If you want to learn more about Ian and what he's doing, um, I will leave several links for a lot of his associated items uh, in the show notes. Uh, there's almost too many to name, but you know he actually just made this great uh, sort of little mini documentary with this company, Wahoo, that he, he's working with right now. Um, so I'll leave a link for that as well as his Instagram and a couple of other things. Um, and then also, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing here at Goldshaw Farm, uh, be sure to check out our YouTube channel. We put out a couple of videos a week, um, and, and uh, we really try to give everybody a glimpse on what's happening here on the farm. Uh, so uh, be sure to check that out. I'll leave links down below for that as well. And uh, until the next episode, I hope you guys enjoy your day and whatever you guys are doing and whatever you're getting after. Um, to end us, let's have my good friend, Mr. Keith Pierce, play our theme song. It's got a soul, this hero farm, it falls asleep inside my arms. We work the fields under the stars, the love is here at Gold Shop Farms. A city life, yeah, had its charms. Stars. I fall asleep inside its arms. The love is here at Gold Shop Farms. The love is here at Gold Shop Farms.